This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Good morning, Dan and Amy. Our uh, friend Bob Woodson, friend of the show, Woodson Center, formerly Center for Neighborhood Enterprise, civil rights leader, and... Um, great uh, proponent of uh, minority entrepreneurship, thus the Center for Neighborhood Enterprise, which morphed into the Woodson Center. Just a um, interesting, accomplished guy. He's right in the hill. And we'll get to this because it would be interesting to hear other people's stories as well. I appreciate uh, him having the uh, openness to share his stories. I've had experience in it on both sides of the issues, talking about sexual harassment mm-hmm. and abuse. Perhaps some of the steps taken in my situation could uh, serve as a guide as our country navigates this new age of political theater in the Me Too movement. He recounts one story where he's uh, in, in the, not, uh, the uh, late 1970s. He's working as a uh, program director for a major nonprofit in New York City, supervising a small staff. One woman, one of the uh, temporary secretaries, came to him one morning. One woman uh, who was a temporary secretary came to him. She uh, sat down. She began to weep uncontrollably. She explained that for five or six months she had been having an affair with one of the men in the office. She said, um, Woodson recounts, as a Muslim and a single, single mother sleeping with a married man was weighing on her conscience. She told him she wanted to end the relationship. He responded with anger, threatening to withhold her pay and make it difficult to continue to work in the organization. So I believed her. I helped her make arrangements to preserve her employment in a position away from the individual she s- said was threatening her. She was not asking that somebody be fired, but rather that she be able to maintain her employment when it had been threatened by a person with a personal and possibly violent grudge. Uh, So that's one example. The other example he gives is on the receiving end. He's uh, working at a different position in D.C., and uh, he's invited to meet uh, new staff. uh, I should say he invited new staff to accompany him to a congressional reception on the Hill, to meet some congressional staff with whom they'd be working. At the end of the evening, I drove the young woman to retrieve her car. I drove a young woman in the office uh, to retrieve her car near the office. She invited me to join her for a drink at her apartment. I declined, noting it was late and I had to get home. When I got home, I shared the young woman's offer with my wife and the next day with the young male staffer so he'd be aware as he interacted with this young woman. About six months later, I terminated her because of poor performance but released her under circumstances that would allow her to collect unemployment. Within two weeks, my doubts and misgivings about the young woman were realized. The day after I terminated her, I arrived at work and was told to report to the office of the president where I was greeted by our general counsel. They told me the young lady in question claimed she was let go because of her refusal to submit to my sexual advances. Both men told me they wanted to reach an out-of-court settlement with her. I told both of them that under no circumstances would I agree to this arrangement because she was lying. Uh, when they told uh, her lawyer the decision, we never heard from him again. Woodson concludes, in my many years on this earth, he's in his 80s, I've witnessed, uh, or about 80, I've witnessed women being treated as objects by their male coworkers and supervisors. Yeah. I'm inclined to believe women when they come forward with stories of harassment and assault or rape in the workplace. However, because of my experience as a wrongly accused party, I'm equally as likely to believe men when they claim innocence when accused of heinous acts. Both men and women are capable of leveling false but damaging yep. allegations. 
just a good perspective, a little uh, wisdom from one of our elders there, Bob Woodson, as uh, we watch the hysteria unfold today and for the rest of the week and who knows how much longer in the Kavanaugh matter. Uh, all right, switching gears, but I want to get back to that and uh, get people's uh, perspectives on what uh, Woodson had to say, but their own professional lives. It's always interesting. It certainly informs people's views on what they're witnessing. Uh, but uh, now uh, uh, Wednesday, this coming Wednesday, 5.30 p.m., our friend Eric Eggers, who's the research director at the Government Accountability Institute, will be at the Heartland Institute. Heartland.org is where you can get more details on Eric's appearance, uh, at which I'm sure he will talk about his book, Fraud, How the Left Plans to Steal the Next Election. Eric, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Hey, thanks so much. And it's an interesting parallel between and you know your discussion earlier, and it's such an important issue, but uh, in many ways, right, the hysteria that's engulfed any claim of uh, sexual harassment or Me Too, I think there's oddly a parallel with, um, you know, what I write about in my book about voter fraud, because any effort, and I document this, to try to secure elections or try to prevent voter from, from occurring are almost always met with this hysteric cry of racism or, or racial oppression. And so I do think, you know, just in both situations, uh, I think it's important that you have an objective and dispassionate examination of what the actual facts, and that's, that's obviously what I hope to do in the book and uh, what I hope to talk about on Wednesday. You mean Thanks. like, and, and when you talk about uh, uh, hysteria and cries of racism, you're talking specifically about voter ID laws mainly? Well, there's that, but it's, but it's not just that. Uh, and, I, you know, I think last time we spoke, we spoke about this fallacy that requiring an ID is somehow uh, racist, even though numerous states have actually seen increases in minority participation after they've implemented voter ID laws. But, you know, the, the real truth about uh, voter fraud is that a lot of what I think you and I and your listeners would consider to be voter fraud is actually legal. And then what happens is, and there's a great example of this that occurred in, in South Florida, you had this sort of uh, triumvirate of an elected uh, local official and a state rep and a state senator, and they all were using this same political operative who was going out and filling out absentee ballot request forms on behalf of Haitian residents. Some people were blind. Some people were elderly. And then he would then go out and harvest those same ballots, and the supervisor of election would flag it and say, hey, look, this is a problem. All these signatures are the same. Sometimes they're blank, but the law mandated that she sent out the absentee ballot request forms. Long story short, the, the sheriffs would actually end up investigating uh, and found clear evidence of voter fraud. But the state senator – or excuse me, the, uh, the state attorney, who's a former Democratic official, refused to prosecute. And when the newspaper would follow up and say, hey, what happened? There's clear evidence of voter fraud because they were all of Haitian descent to a man. Every single one of them turned it into a, a racial issue. So it wasn't about the facts where you had forged signatures or you know, what appeared to be uh, you know, violations of election law behavior. But it was, in fact, well, it became about the ethnic minority of uh, the people that were trying to get elected. So, so that's an example of, I think, oftentimes racial hues distort an objective analysis of what's actually occurring on the ground. Well, in regards to our, our upcoming midterms, do you think voter fraud is going to take down Peter Raskam and Randy Hulkren? I mean, I think they're going to try, right? Uh, it is, there's certainly no evidence to suggest that uh, the elections are more secure um, you know, or as secure as they need to be. I think every day I see news stories. There's a story in New Jersey about a woman admitting that she was paying $50 to get people's votes. Uh, you've seen people hack into election systems. Uh, we've got a candidate in, who's running for governor here in Florida who brags about his 15-year relationship 
with George Soros. And I think, you know, we, we've got a network, a documented network and relationship between George Soros and Tom Perez that I think has infiltrated party machinery and uh, ballot races in every corner of the country. And I think Illinois and Chicago is no different. So I, I think you guys, you know, thankfully there's people like you that are monitoring it and talking about it. I spoke to a group of election law attorneys last month and they said, listen, uh, you know, we're on the ground fighting this, but it's not easy. And, and num- a number of them were actually former prosecutors or judges that said, listen, I've seen these cases, but I, my hands are tied either because the law doesn't really allow me to do much or because even if the law does allow me, I have such limited resources in my office. If I'm a prosecutor, what am I going after? Somebody that's, you know, committing voter fraud or somebody's committing physical assault, right? So, um, you know, many people would agree that voter fraud is the easiest crime to commit and get away with, and that's just a sad reality. Well, it's funny because, uh, not funny, ha-ha funny, but uh, funny ironic, because last week we had a leading Democrat in St. Clair County at a rally for Democrats down there in the Metro East by St. Louis, where you've got another competitive congressional race, Mike Boss re-election, uh, say to the assembled at this rally, you know, get out there and— uh, but, you know, the typical kind of voterly vote often a tongue in cheek, but it wasn't tongue in cheek. He said, do whatever you have to do. And, you know, I shouldn't say this, but I'm not even kidding about it. I mean, straight well, face. It, it, it was it wasn't a punchline. It wasn't a punchline. It's a rallying cry. And that's not uncommon these days. And I think, you know, what you're realizing, look at look at what's happening with Kavanaugh now. Right. I mean, you, and you let in with some of the undercurrents and maybe that's a tactic that's being employed strategically by Democrats now to prevent this. But, but that's what's on the ballot. Right. I mean, what you're seeing occurring and a lot of people have raised questions about, you know, is this ethical, the way that they're sort of maybe using this lady and the way they sat on this claim and they're just doing whatever they can to scuttle the nomination. But I think we knew that would occur. Right. I mean, what's on the ballot is the blocking of a Supreme Court nominee, the impeachment of the president, the abolishment of ICE and the entire laundry list of progressive uh, agenda items that I think we're seeing all over the country. So and yeah, these people have I think they, this perception of that they have the moral authority because this guy Donald Trump is clearly evil, right? He's clearly doesn't respect women, doesn't respect immigrants. Um, he you know he is the anti-antithesis of all the progressive values. So in their opinion, anything that they can do is warranted and justified as long as it results in the impeachment of Donald Trump and the blocking of the Supreme Court nominee. Well, I think that's. What you're, what you're seeing in Kavanaugh now is what you're going to see at the ballot box. What, at the ballot box, do you think social media is also uh, one of the referenda uh, on the uh, November 6th ballot? Uh, you've got uh, word that an executive order uh, is uh, being drafted to uh, look at social media giants in terms of their uh, content, how they manage content or other people's content, which ultimately is their content. Um, we've seen a lot of discussion over the last several weeks, including the appearance of executives from the big companies before uh, members of Congress and some suggestion by Mark Stein and others that we're so worried about Russia when it's Twitter, Facebook and Google that are going to have a much more manipulative effect on our electoral outcomes. Well, that's, that's an excellent point. I don't know if you did this on purpose, but um, I'm actually the producer on a film that debuted in New York and D.C. last week. And will be coming to Amazon and iTunes uh, soon, and, and I'll be speaking about this at, uh, at the Heartland Institute on Wednesday as well. But the film's called The Creepy Line, and it's a documentary about Google and Facebook and how much power they have over the American public to manipulate us in an unsuspecting way. And uh, one of the things that we talk about in that film is the power that Google and Facebook both could have in terms of swaying elections 
Facebook, if they you know modify what people see in terms of the newsfeed, and or they just send out get out the vote reminders specifically only to Democrats. You know, Google and there's a, a psychologist whose work we feature in the film named Robert Epstein, and he's documented the way in which you can manipulate the way search results come back or even the autocomplete box, and that can impact some voting demographic. It's up to 80 percent. Actually, the voting demographic that's most susceptible to manipulation is moderate Republicans. So you're absolutely right, and I think that's a very real problem. I mean, the good news for us is uh, I have it on good authority that that film, which again was uh, was screened in D.C. last week, has, has caught the attention of some people in the White House, and uh, you know we're hopeful that people are taking a look at that. But you're right. I mean, that's that's only going to motivate what's clearly uh, a reliable leftist block in terms of the social media titans to try to make sure that they have a desired outcome in November, 100%. He is Eric Eggers, Research Director at the Government Accountability Institute. The book, Fraud, How the Left Plans to Steal the Next Election, and uh, the movie, The Creepy Line, that you just heard, will be coming out on Amazon. Uh, he'll be at the Heartland Institute this Wednesday evening, 5.30 p.m., heartland.org for all of the details. Eric, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks so much, guys. And he joined us on our Turnkey 